to see you. You know, I've seen a lot of really good-looking church congregations, but none better than today, the, the assemblage that I see before me. Is that a word? Yeah, I took that, fa- that Facebook vocabulary test, and I scored really high, and it told me I was able to actually invent new words. It literally did. It said, you can invent new words, so I'm taking that upon myself today. Yes. No, I won't do that very much. Well, it's so good to have you here today. Uh, I am excited to be here this morning because I just love to worship with God's people. I love to come together and be in the presence of God. Uh, and there's power in worship. How many of you believe that, that there's power in worship? You know, the, the, the reality that we believe in as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is that what we see is not the most uh, is not the totality of reality. How do you like that? That's a wrap right there. Uh, what we see with our eyes, our physical eyes, is not everything there is. There's a spiritual realm. And so when we lift up praises and songs of worship to the Lord, there's, a, there's an atmosphere that's being affected and changed, uh, not just in our personal life, but right here in this physical space, in our church, and spiritually in our community, that when God is lifted up, His, his name is, is made famous and His praises are proclaimed, that his presence comes down and there's a transformation in the atmosphere. And so keep on worshiping. I want to encourage you to, whatever, wherever level of worship you are that you bring to God on a Sunday or even in your own private times of worship, I want to encourage you to take another step in that. So maybe like you see, you know, the guys up here and girls up here in stage and they're kind of dancing and getting into it and lifting their hands and stuff. And you're like, uh, I'm not really there yet. That's okay. You can do a little white person dance and kind of like bob your head like this, you know. And uh, my kids, I, I mortify them with the dance moves that they see from me at home. I won't uh, give you any of those today. But, but, you know, maybe for you that's lifting up your hands. Maybe it's, it's using your voice and singing. But I want to encourage you to take another step in your worship, really as an act of faith, believing that God is responding to that. You know, there's a, a great teaching, and we'll probably do it here in the church at some point, about the nine forms of worship that we see in Scripture, the, the nine ways that God actually asks for us to worship. And those are like singing and shouting and speaking and dancing and lifting of hands and different ones. But we're a worshiping church and we believe in that. And that's a, a big part of who we are. Well, I'm excited because on August 7th, we're going to Valley River, Regal, Regal Valley River Movie Theaters. And uh, it's the longest name ever, but you know where it's at. And uh, it's exciting uh, because God is, is increasing our, our territory. God's moving us into a new area as a church. And I'll tell you why. It's not because we like popcorn so much, although I do like popcorn. It's not because the seats are incredibly comfortable, and they are incredibly comfortable. Uh, It's because I believe that God is going to draw thousands and thousands of people in to meet Jesus Christ, to hear the gospel message proclaimed, to to be greeted by your lovely, beautiful faces and the love of God flowing out of you as a church. And, And the Lord wants to put us right in the middle of the city so that His love can spread, His joy can spread all around our community. How many of you think that our world and our even our city needs more joy? Our city needs more of Jesus. Uh, and his presence uh, moving through. And, uh, and I'm excited about that, so we're doing that. But we're going to be here for this week and next week, and we're finishing up a series called Bigger. How many of you have been getting something out of the Bigger series, right? Hopefully you're not getting physically bigger in this series. That's, that's me. I had a hamburger and onion rings and french fries the other day, and I was like, got on the scale. I'm like, get off the scale. Okay. You know that it's, you know you've overeaten when the scale's like, could one of you please step off? <laughs> It's one of those talking scales, you know what I mean? Can't get no respect. Okay. But uh, we've been in this series called Bigger, and uh, we're talking about a God who is bigger than every challenge, every circumstance, every mountain, every giant. We've been talking about faith and, 
and trust in God that when we see God in His rightful place as the, the big God that He is, that it, it leads us to take steps of faith, right? We, we don't play it safe. We, you can't play it safe and please God. It's impossible to please God without faith, Hebrews 11 says. And uh, we're talking about this God who is bigger, and our tagline for this series is, is we need to elevate our perspective of God. So whatever level you see God at, maybe your God is right here, you need to see Him at a higher place because no matter where you are, you can see God bigger because He is bigger. God is amazing. He's, he's bigger than anything we can imagine. The creator of the, the universe, the, the creator of you and I, God is bigger than, than anything and, and we need to elevate our perspective. But we're going to take a little bit of a turn today and, and kind of move off of the area of faith and trust and I want, to, I want to share a message with you about grace. Somebody say grace. grace. Right? You literally say grace, like, Lord, bless this food. No, I'm just kidding. But I want to talk about grace, and I want to talk about bigger grace, that the grace that perhaps we see coming from God and the way that we perceive God's grace isn't big enough, and we need to elevate our perspective of God in the area of grace. Are you ready for that this morning? I want to say something kind of, I believe, provocative to some level, but, but I believe it with all my heart, that God's grace is bigger than your failure. God's grace is bigger than my failure. I want you to like soak that in for a second. I want you to, to kind of think about that. I want you to think about the moments in your life that you have really dropped the ball. The moments in life when you did something that, was, that you don't tell anybody about. The moments in life that you hurt somebody that you cared about or you hurt somebody that you don't care about, but you, you know it was wrong. The areas in life when you really messed up. And I want you to understand that however you see the grace of God, God's grace is bigger. We need to elevate our perspective of God and elevate our perspective of His grace. His grace is bigger than our failure. You know, I was thinking about my own life and moments of colossal failure. And there's, there's a lot of uh, situations I could recount, but one of the biggest failures of my life, I'm not going to share anything inappropriate or anything, but... One of the biggest failures in my life was the way that I treated my wife, Bethany, before we were married. Now, I love my wife. She loves me, at least you know, most of the time she loves me when I'm being a good husband, but you know, she loves me all the time. She, it takes tremendous uh, amount of the presence of God in her life to, to just <laughs> deal with me. But uh, before Bethany and I got married, we were dating, and, and I was like all in right away. I'm, I was like telling her I love her after two weeks, you know, just one of those people. That's just how I am. And I'm like, I love you. And she's kind of like, okay, well, we're, we're new in this thing. And so she was a little bit, her family was a little bit less talkative and communication-centric. They were like more like, don't share your feelings all the time. And so I thought she was kind of indifferent. And so we didn't really click. I'm like all in and she's kind of reserved. And I thought that meant she didn't love me. And I got really cold feet. So then I did, you know, this really gentle, uh, no, I screwed it up and I, we went on this trip with a bunch of people, and I just stopped talking to her for a week, which is the best way to break up with somebody. No, it's not. So she's confused. She doesn't know what's going on, and it was horrible. And my parents were angry at me, and everybody on the trip was angry at me. Like, what are you doing, you moron? You're a failure. And I'm like, God's grace. No, I'm just like, I don't know what to do. I have cold feet. And I just, I failed. So we get home, and I realize I have to break up with, with Bethany because I just, I, I don't know what's going on inside of me. So I go to her and I give her all of the classic worthless breakup lines like, we're too much alike and we're too different. And, you know, like, she's like, what? This doesn't make sense. But I, I break up with this beautiful, incredible woman. And three weeks later, I sort of move out of the fog and my feet thaw a little bit. And I go, oh, no, I love her. 
and I have now broken up with love of my life, and I'm a complete utter failure. I'm a worthless piece of garbage, right? No one likes me. All the girls hate me. All the guys think I'm stupid. How could you break up with this beautiful girl? You know, well, actually, probably my friends were all probably like, oh, I wonder how I can uh, accept in there. Just kidding. Uh, but uh, I, I had this colossal failure, and I waited a, a little while, even though I, I really love Bethany, because I didn't want to mess up again, and I, and I wanted to be sure. But I, I came back in September, and I, I asked my dad, I said, Dad, what should I do? And he said, Beg. How many ladies know that's a good piece of advice right there? One word so loaded with meaning. So I come with my best. You know, and we're, we're, Bethany's with a group of my, a group of our friends, and uh, we're going to drive up to Ashland. And, and during that breakup time, I got LASIK surgery, bought a BMW, and started golfing. Come on. <laughs> so I wasn't like just totally living in shame. But anyways. So I have my new Beamer, and, and, uh, and not a new Beamer, it was new to me, used to somebody else for many, many years. Uh, but anyways, um, you know, I, I decided this was the night that I was going to beg her to take me back, so I said, we were getting ready to go with a group of friends to Ashland, which is about 12 miles south of Medford, where we were living, and I said, Bethany, would you, would you ride with me? And she's like, no. You know, and, and she was all mad at me, because I'd been flirting with her and trying to, like, you know, see if there was anything there. And uh, I'm like, please, please, just ride with me. Just please ride with me. She's like, fine. So we get in the car and like immediately put it in reverse. I go back down the driveway and I'm just like, I want to beg you to forgive me. Please, please, please take me back. I'm an idiot. I'm stupid. Right? I just, any, I, all the names in the book, everything that was, you know, safe words, like anything that was appropriate, I said it. Like, I'm stupid. I'm the worst. And I begged her to take me back, and she said, well, you have to talk to my dad and my brother again. And I was like, why, did, why would you use these as conditions? Because I'd asked her dad the first time if I could, you know, date his daughter to be respectful, right? How many think it's okay for us to be chivalrous and respectful? And, uh, and so I'm like, okay, I'll ask him again, you know, and her brother is like, you know, this nerd. I'm like, I don't know why you need to talk to him. But she, but she, realized, she said later, well, I had to give you some conditions. I couldn't just, like, you know, make it, make it so easy. Uh, and then she kept me hanging for a little while, like the whole night she kept me hanging and I'm like, I think we're together, but I don't know what's going on. This is weird. And, but she did take me back. Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise the Lord. And she showed me grace. She showed me grace. God showed me grace. I, I was a colossal failure. I had done everything wrong. I messed it up. I, I didn't, I wasn't honoring to her. I wasn't respectful to her. I just, I messed it all up and I should have just I shouldn't have been able to get back into her good graces, right? But she showed me grace, and I was so happy about that. Now, that's just one colossal failure. Believe me, I have so many different times that God showed me grace, but I'm so grateful that relationship was restored because of grace. That, even, that on the other side of a failure, there could be a new life. You know, how many of you think that maybe Evie and Jack and Penelope are pretty thankful that Bethany showed me grace because they wouldn't exist if she didn't, Right? Uh, and, and the life that we have and the love that we share and the things that God has called us to do are possible because of grace. Let me just tell you right now, maybe you're, looking, you're sitting on one side of a colossal failure and you think it can't ever be better, it can't ever be okay again. And I want to tell you that the beautiful thing about God is that His grace can make the other side of failure better than the, than the first part. Come on. God's grace is bigger than our failure. How many of you ever heard this song? I think there's a song, Tim, it's about grace. It's called Amazing Grace. You ever heard that song? <laughs> Anybody ever hear that one before? What's the thing? It goes, Amazing Grace, 
How sweet the sound. Oh, man, you guys are good singers. Come on, let's <laughs> Amazing Grace was written by a guy. Let me just say this. His name is John Newton, okay? He penned the words to Amazing Grace. He was a slave trader. He, he picked up slaves in Africa. He was a captain of a slave trading ship and, and took them. Uh, that's not a good thing to do in case you were confused. Don't, don't do that. Uh, John Newton... Uh, he wrote Amazing Grace. John Newton was, this is, a tr- this is true about John Newton. He was reprimanded. You're going to love this. He was reprimanded for his foul mouth by a captain of a sailing ship. His mouth was so filthy that sailors felt uncomfortable around him. It was said of John Newton that he could swear and profane so well that he literally would come up with things that even the sailors were like, okay, that's too far for us. That is ridiculous. This is a man who is in need of grace. John Newton had an encounter with death a couple times in his life, but he was in the middle of a storm, and he, I think, had actually tied himself to the mast in the middle of the storm. And he cried out to God and said, you know, God, basically, if you will save me, uh, I will give my life to you. And, and John Newton was, was converted uh, to becoming a Christian and shown amazing grace. And John Newton, many years later as a, uh, basically an Anglican priest or, or minister, uh, he, became, he went into the, the ministry at some point in his life later on. And he was a very plain-spoken person. Did you know, even in his day and age, when he penned the words to Amazing Grace, people were critical of it because they said it was too lowbrow. You know what I mean? And the words Amazing Grace in the hymn are written this way, Amazing Grace, exclamation point. So when you sing the song Amazing Grace, it doesn't go, Amazing Grace. It goes, Amazing Grace. Because that is what he encountered in his life. Probably one of the most famous songs in all of history is about grace. That a person who literally put sailors to shame with his mouth and was a slave trader and and actually a pretty horrible person in a lot of other ways. He encountered the grace of God and on the other side of his life changed history really through that song and in his life changed the lives of people that God used him because he encountered grace. This morning I want to say God's grace is bigger than your failure. God's grace is bigger than your failure. And you know, it is essential for us as followers of Christ to understand and embrace the true grace of God in order for us to be effective witnesses for Christ. One of the reasons I believe that the world is often indifferent to the message of Jesus is because it is delivered from from mouths and, and, and spoken and lived out in lives that do not truly understand grace and are not saturated and soaked with the grace of God. I believe that as followers of Jesus, when we are soaked with grace and grace comes out of every pore of our bodies and every word that we speak is filled with the grace of God that has been experienced through us, God's grace is now being channeled through us that people will listen to that message because there's a reality of transformation and revolution that is found in the grace of God. I want to tell you a story out of John chapter 8 verse 1. I'm going to read it out of the message paraphrase. I just like how it says it here. It says, Jesus went across to Mount of Olives, but he was soon back in the temple again. And it says, swarms of people came to him. Do you know why swarms of people came to Jesus? He did miracles. Absolutely, he did miracles. And sure, he spoke with authority, but it was because his, his, his words were full of grace. That people knew that when they came to Jesus, there was hope, not condemnation. Okay? There's a difference. Now, I'm going to tell you that Jesus never breaks God's law. He never denies God's law, but there was hope in his words. There was grace in his words. And it says he sat down and he taught them. And the religion scholars and Pharisees, they led in a woman. Now, I want you to imagine this 
pageant that goes on. Here's Jesus in the temple courtyard. There's people all around him, people all around him. And all of a sudden, this woman, and she's crying. And, you know, I don't know if she had makeup on, but it's probably running down her face. And she's a hot mess, as they say. Because she's literally been pulled out of an adulterous affair. And these men, these scholars of religion and these Pharisees, they, they bring her, this woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they stood her in plain sight of everyone. Now think about your colossal failure. And let's say that right after you commit this colossal failure, that you get to be brought in front of everyone, stood in where they can see. And they said, teacher, this woman was caught red-handed in the act of adultery. Moses in the law gives orders to stone such persons. What do you say? They're going to trap Jesus, right? Because they want him to bring down the judgment on her. Because they know we got her. She's guilty of this sin, and the law of Moses says that she's to be stoned. And so they, they, they think they're going to put him in a trap, trying to trap him into saying something incriminating so they could bring charges against him. Because they want him to say, no, I'll release her, and then they'd say, no, you broke the law, or condemn her, and then in the eyes of the people, he would lose some credibility. It says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the dirt. And they kept at him, badgering him. Isn't the voice of accusation always a badgering voice? You did it, you did it, you did it, you did it, you did it. You know, one of the worst things about the devil is he tempts you to sin, then you give in, and then he condemns you for it. Hey, you should do it, it'll feel great. Hey, you should do it, it'll be good. Hey, you should do it, it'll be awesome. Oh, what'd you do? You're the worst. God doesn't love you. Isn't Satan a loser? Okay. They kept at him, badgering him, and he straightened up and said, The sinless one, one among you, go first. Throw the stone. Now listen to the, the genius of Jesus here. He doesn't transgress the law. He keeps the penalty with the law said intact. So Jesus doesn't change God's law. I want you to note that. He doesn't change God's law. He says, throw the first stone, the sinless one among you. And bending down again, he wrote some more in the dirt. Now that's just awesome right there, right? Okay, he pops his head up. First one without sin, you throw the stone. Then he doesn't even look to see what happens. He just bends down and starts doing art again in the sand. I, who knows what he's writing? Maybe he was playing tic-tac-toe. We don't know. It's like another day in the life of Jesus. You know what I mean? And it says here, hearing that, they walked away one after another, beginning with the oldest. And the woman was left alone. Now I want you to think and put yourself in her shoes and you've just gone through the, it's the biggest colossal failure of your life and you're brought up in front of everybody and you are absolutely humiliated. And you know that you're guilty as well. So not only are you embarrassed, you're also guilty. And there you are and all of a sudden you, you're waiting for the stones and you sort of flinch when he says, Cast that stone because you're waiting for that first person to just let it loose and just hit you with that rock. And all of a sudden you just hear thud, 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 thud. And the steps, you kind of look up and everyone's gone. And Jesus stood up and spoke to her, woman, where are they? Does no one condemn you? She said, no one, master. You think Jesus was pretty good at evangelism? Because he's not giving a cheap message. And I'm not saying we, you know, sometimes we just invite people to church. That's not a cheap thing. I'm not saying that. But Jesus didn't just give her a religious platitude. He, he didn't just pat her on the shoulder. 
changed her life in this moment with an act of grace. He said, neither do I. Go on your way, and from now on, don't sin. What a beautiful story of the grace of God, activated in the life of a beautiful person who was in an act of colossal failure, guilty as sin, caught red-handed in the act of adultery, and yet Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. What a beautiful picture of God's grace. But you know, as beautiful as this picture is, oftentimes as believers, we get it wrong when we think about grace. And I want to tell you a couple things. I want to give you two big thoughts this morning on grace, and then we'll lead into some, uh, some other stuff and, and go eat something good today. But two big thoughts on grace that I want to point out from this story and from the rest of scriptures. Number one is that God's grace doesn't break God's law. It satisfies His justice. God's grace never breaks God's law. Remember what I said about Jesus. He kept the penalty intact. All right, And I'm going to point something else out here that I think will be interesting to you. That Jesus does not break God's law. He doesn't say adultery is not wrong now. Jesus doesn't say uh, that uh, you know, lying isn't wrong now. Jesus doesn't say stealing is not wrong now. He never changes the law. He applies grace and justice into the situation Sin is never excused. And I want to tell you that right now, if you've ever had sin done against you and somebody's ever committed an act of injustice against you or lied about you or cheated you or whatever has happened to you, you don't want, it doesn't, it doesn't really feel good if somebody just came along and said, ah, it doesn't, it's not really a big deal what happened to you. Right? It wasn't really a big deal when that person stole your inheritance. Forgive them. Just feel better. You're like, Okay, I don't feel good about it. You know what I mean? It hurts because it was wrong. The woman wasn't sitting there like, oh, great, oh, I'm good now, like I'm fine. No, no, she still has to process, okay? Sin affects us. It affects our, 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 our own life. It affects our relationship with our Heavenly Father. It affects our relationships with one another. Sin leaves damage. It's darkness. It's death. It brings destruction whenever it comes into your life. And God never says sin is okay. Do you understand this? See, oftentimes we think about grace and mercy. We think, oh, well, you know, forgiveness comes in. And we have this very weak perspective of God. But God's grace does not break God's law. It always satisfies his justice. Let me tell you why that Jesus didn't condemn her. You see, he knew the law better than any of these men. In the law of Moses, it says this. To stone somebody for an act of adultery, there must be two witnesses. And you must stone the man and the woman. Now notice here, who's conspicuously absent? The man. Maybe he was in the crowd with a stone in the back. We don't know. But he was conspicuously absent. So Jesus knew, you guys, you're not right on the law here, are you? Where were the witnesses? Two witnesses had to step forward and say, yep, this is what happened. Jesus actually pulls the condemnation away because of justice. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. He said, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Not one part of God's holiness will ever be lowered to a lower standard. God is perfect in all of his ways. We sing that song, you are perfect in all of your ways. How incredible is our God that he never drops his holiness standard and yet he, he, he transforms us through his grace and mercy to come up to that standard of holiness. So that big thought about grace is that God's grace never breaks God's law. Jesus never violated the law. 
of Moses in this entire story. He never changed the law. He never altered the law. Every single thing he did honored God's law, but he satisfies justice. And I'll, and I'll explain this. And then number two, the second big thought. You guys with me today? The second big thought. The basis of our forgiveness isn't mercy, it's justice. You go, what? Because we talk so much as Christians about all oh, the mercy of God and forgiveness. And you know, those things are incredible. But did you know that the basis of, of our forgiveness, our right standing with God, when we receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, and we believe that that gives us eternal life and that we've received salvation unto eternal life. Come on, get excited, right? We have forgiveness in Jesus. How many of you are glad that you're forgiven of your sins, right? That he cast those sins as far uh, away as the east is from the west into the sea of forgetfulness. I'm just preaching right now. Come on. We, we love forgiveness. But did you know that our forgiveness is not because of just mercy where God just came in and said, oh, it wasn't a big deal. I'll just throw it out. No, forgiveness is based in justice. Listen to what Pastor J.D. Greer said. He said in 1 John 1, 9, John says that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And notice that John didn't say that God is merciful and kind to forgive our sins. And that's because the basis of God's forgiveness of us is not mercy, it is justice. Now I'm going to explain this to you. Jesus paid for our sins. They were not excused. Jesus paid for every sin that was ever committed from history past to the future, from the present and all the way into the future, every sin ever committed was placed upon Jesus Christ at Calvary, right? On the cross, Jesus became sin for us, and he was in that moment Adolf Hitler and a child molester. He carried every sexual sin inside of himself. He carried every lie, every iniquity, everything, every sin ever committed, every sin. He carried that adultery that that woman committed. He carried everything that I've ever done in my life upon himself and he became sin and he paid for it. God didn't say it doesn't matter, it wasn't a big deal, just write it off. Every sin was paid for, not excused. Therefore, when we say I've been forgiven, the mercy of God is evident in that he sent us Jesus. Not that he just throws sin out like it doesn't matter. Come on, does that change how you think about grace? God is so big He's so big that he had to, to take the tension of his perfection and holiness and the tension of our sin and find a moment of grace and this beautiful place at the cross where mercy triumphed over judgment in Jesus. But God never steps down from his perfection and his holiness. He satisfies his perfection through justice and our forgiveness is because of justice. The grace of God is extended to us on the basis of an accepted payment. Of an accepted payment. Kyle and I were driving up to Dutch Brothers one day and getting some coffee, as we do most times, like six, eight times a day. But anyways, we were pulling up to Dutch Brothers and we heard these beautiful words come out of the kiosk. The person in front of you paid for your coffee. You know what I mean? I was just like about ready to, you know, just get Pentecostal. I... Like, pay, somebody paid for my coffee? I mean, it's like $3, but it's really exciting, you know? Now, if you're at Starbucks and somebody pays for your coffee, that's when you really rejoice, because we call Starbucks five bucks, you know what I mean? You're going to pay a lot. Somebody paid our bill in advance. We hadn't even ordered our coffee, and they'd already dropped a five spot or a ten spot or whatever and covered our bill. 
But you know, here's the thing. It was paid for. It wasn't just excused. We didn't pull up the Dutch Brothers and they say, oh, it's free coffee day. Free coffee for everybody. No, there was value exchanged for what we received. Come on, somebody. There was value exchanged for what we received. Now, when we think about grace and forgiveness, oftentimes we think about it as if there was no value exchanged. Let me tell you, it cost heaven something to send Jesus to pay for your sins and my sins. There is value exchanged for value received. And guess what that means? It means that when we think about grace and forgiveness, we need to see the worth of Jesus. Why will every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord? Because Jesus exchanged his life. There was value given to purchase us back, to ransom us from sin, to ransom us from the slavery of death and despair and darkness. Sin is not excused, it's paid for. It's paid for. And why can God forgive? Why can He release? Because He paid for that sin. So as we finish up today, I want to give you three things that understanding this bigger grace that leads to. This grace that's not cheap, it's not free, it costs Jesus everything. And it, and it creates value in our lives when we experience it. Three things that bigger grace leads to. Number one, it leads to personal transformation. Personal transformation. Most people encounter a gospel of Jesus that is moral reformation, meaning change your behavior and God will accept you. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not about moral reformation. It's about soul, person, the totality of who we are, holistic transformation from the inside out. Can I get an amen? It's not the gospel of moral reformation. Oh, do better, do better, do better. Don't sin, don't sin, don't push the red button and then God will love you. That's not possible. How many of you know that if you've ever tried to not sin, you just go sin more? It's who we are, right? Because we are, we are broken. There's a, the, the, the chip of righteousness is malfunctioned inside of us. It's what we call the fall of man. And we are, we are broken at a deep level and we can't do what's right in and of our own strength. And even when we try to do what's right, we do it for the wrong motive and then we're wrong again. Right? And so we don't need moral reformation. We need personal transformation. And let me just say that nothing changes our lives like grace. Nothing has the power to change your life like grace because God's grace literally has the power to transform you from the inside out and change your desires. Do you know the part of, the, of you and, and me that Jesus wants? He wants your wanter. He wants your heart, your wanter. He wants that part of you that makes conscious decisions to act and do something. You go, well, man, Jesus wants me to do better. No, he doesn't want you to do better. He wants to transform you into a better person, right? He wants to change you from the inside out. It says this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. Listen to this part here. Here's the payoff. You'll be changed from the inside out. Come on, somebody. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you and develops a well-formed maturity in you. God brings the best out of you and me. Personal transformation is a result of God's grace. Now listen to what Jesus did in, back in that story that we read about this woman in John chapter 8. The very last thing Jesus says to her is, now go and sin no more. 
One of the beautiful things about grace is that grace leads into a life of obedience. Grace is not about the continued uh, production of sinfulness. It's about the production of righteousness. God's grace should, should begin to affect you at a deep level where there begins to be transformation, not moral reformation. Well, I'm just going to do better things and God will accept me. No, because God has accepted me, I can begin to do right. Personal transformation. Listen to this. It's kind of cheesy, but I think it'll, it'll bring the point home. God's grace is about root renewal, not fruit removal. God's grace is about root renewal. He wants to change my desires. He wants to change the, the things that I hunger and thirst for. He wants to transform me from the inside out into a person that, that wants to follow, that wants to do what's right, that wants to give grace, that wants to love. And oftentimes we spend so much time picking fruit off trees and hoping that it'll produce different fruit. You know, if you have an apple tree and you pick all the apples off, it doesn't make pears, does it? And yet that's how we often take, uh, we often give that same mindset to our own life. Well, you know, if I'm dealing with uh, looking at things I shouldn't look at, if I stop doing that and I pick all the fruit, then maybe I'll get different fruit next time. No, if the root is the same, you're going to get that same fruit, no matter how good and how fast you get at picking the fruit off that tree. The scary thing is that as believers, sometimes we get so good at picking fruit that the tree always looks, it's just barren, but it's still an evil root. And Jesus wants to come and transform us on the inside so that the root is renewed, so that we are being transformed and, and progressing with Jesus. Come on. And His grace. Number two, bigger grace leads to transformed relationships. Let me ask you this question. Does your experience of God's abundant grace change how you treat other people? You know, there's a story that, that Jesus tells about this wicked and unforgiving servant. The servant owes the master like the equivalent of like $10 million. Jesus talks about how this servant comes in and he's getting ready to be thrown into debtor's prison and the master says, you know what? Forgive you your debt. That's a picture of God forgiving us a debt that we could never repay. Okay? Through Jesus, the payment of Jesus, but, but forgiving our debt. And that servant goes out and he's like, thank you, master. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And he goes out and he spots another servant that owes him like 50 bucks. And he goes and he grabs him by the neck and says, pay me what you owe me. Pay me what you owe me or I'll have you thrown into the debtor's prison. And a bunch of, uh, a bunch of uh, eavesdroppers and people were watching other servants and Jesus tells the story and they saw what that servant did and they went and told the master, master, this is what this guy did. And the master said, go get that person, that man, and tell him that he has to pay me every penny that he owes me until that debt is satisfied. Our relationships with others should be transformed by the grace that has been extended to us. How can I hold someone else accountable in my heart for what Jesus has paid for? It's not just bad for you, it's wrong in the eyes of God. Listen to the words of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says, and pray this way, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive. As we forgive those who owe us a debt. As we forgive those who owe us a debt. The fastest way to stop the flow of God's forgiveness and grace in your life is to hold someone accountable for a debt that has been paid and to not see that person in light of what God has done in your life. Grace should transform us in the way that we relate to other people. Now again, somebody hurt you. Somebody, maybe you had molestation in your life or abuse or or a horrible divorce, or whatever happened, it's not to say that you don't look at that situation and say that was wrong, it was evil, it was injustice. 
Remember, God's grace never breaks God's law, never denies God's law, never changes God's law. Right is right, wrong is wrong. But grace and forgiveness says, no, Jesus paid for that sin. I can release that person even though I know what they did was wrong. Come on, somebody. And this can transform you from the inside out because it allows God's grace to continue to flow in you. Forgiveness is applying Christ's work on the cross towards the debt of another person. To forgive someone is to apply what Jesus did on the cross to the debt of another person. Don't be the guy who sits there and gets forgiven $10 million from the master and goes out and holds somebody by the neck for 50 bucks. Transform relationships. And lastly, bigger grace has the power, gives us a transformed relationship with our Father. Gives us a transformed relationship with God. When you understand the grace of God, it's a free gift, right? The Bible says this, that the goodness of God is what leads us to repentance. Don't see God as this old guy up there in heaven with the book of all your sins and he's just right there ready to write down everything that you do. When God looks at you and you've received Jesus Christ, he sees his son and he sees perfection and he sees a payment that has been paid in full. He doesn't see the sinner, he sees his son. Come on. And this transforms our relationship with God. When you think about God, do you feel the smile of your father or do you feel an angry glare? Because if you feel an angry glare, you haven't received the grace of God. Come on. If you, if, if you don't feel the smile of God, it should literally put some warmth on your shoulders. Because that's how he sees you. In, in Jesus, if you're in Christ, he doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your failure as colossal as it may be. The secret thing that nobody else knows about, that's not what God sees. He sees his son Jesus and he receives you and he accepts you. It says in Romans 5.11, we can now rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. When I see my friends, when I see my friend Ed, I'm not like, oh, you know, I'm like, Ed! I, and I see Ed all the time, but I'm always excited. You know what I mean? When I see Todd, I'm like, oh, hey, Todd. No, I'm just kidding. But I'm excited. When I see Keith, I'm excited. And my friends, when I see my friend Matt and Jen, who are moving up from Medford to be with us. Woo, woo, woo. They're here, actually. You're here. You have moved. You're, you're in process. Okay. When I see my friends, I'm excited every time. When I see Judah, I'm excited every time because they're my friends. When God sees us through Jesus, we're the friends of God. God's grace transforms us. You're not a second-class citizen. You're, you're, you have full refrigerator rights. You know what I mean? That's a good refrigerator to have rights to, isn't it? When you come to my house, if you're my friend, you have full refrigerator rights. Bethany might revoke them at some point, but for me, you do. She's like, no, we have a menu. Get out of here. Judah, stop. Put the hummus away. You know, I'm just kidding. We can rejoice in this wonderful new relationship. And Paul said in Romans chapter 8, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, not angels, not demons, not our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Bigger grace is about knowing the gospel of Jesus, that all of us don't deserve grace. All of us don't deserve mercy. We have earned, through the law of God and through justice, we've earned punishment. We've earned eternal separation from God. But through God's grace, He sent His Son, Jesus, and every debt was paid. And that if you will believe in Jesus today, 
and put your faith and your trust in Him, you can be saved. Come on. You don't have to do a dance or pray a certain prayer or light a candle that if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, if right now you will in your heart and in your mind just believe what God's Word is telling you, that you cannot be separated from God's love, and you'll put your faith in Jesus, you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that God raised Him from the dead, right? And what that signifies and what that means, that your debt was paid. You can say, He takes my place and now I'm a friend of God. Come on, somebody. And God's eternal life begins to come into you right now. Starting now, you enter into eternity with God. And the power of death and the power of sin and the power of iniquity begins to, it it is broken from that moment. And now every day you get to be transformed inside of yourself by God's grace. Your relationships now get to be different because of God's grace. And you have a new relationship, a wonderful new relationship, it says in Romans 5, with your Father in heaven. Hallelujah. That's the bigger grace of God.